Welcome everyone. So today we have something a little different. We're interviewing a guy named Mike T. Nelson. He's kind of like the science nerd who knows a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff. I happen to be, so Dean, I'm traveling in New York with a seminar and I'm actually staying with Mike. So Mike and I are actually recording in one studio and then Andrew is calling in. Mike has a cool background. Like I said, he knows a lot of stuff, but he has a PhD in exercise physiology, a BA in natural science, and a master's of biomechanics. Again, knows tons. The cool places that we go in this podcast is we talk about metabolic flexibility, something he's really passionate about, and how we can include those concepts into our diet. We also jump into HRV. There's kind of a lot of buzz going about tracking stress and some of the indicators that you can use to kind of help your training and nutrition. He's kind of the expert, the go-to guy on that. And then with all the relevance of cannabis being legalized in Canada, we actually asked Mike about this, and he has a lot of information about the science of it and how it can actually be used to help training and help recovery. So that's kind of a cool conversation. I think you should stay tuned. So again, if you like us, share share the podcast with people you know. Rate us five stars on, on iTunes and, and drop us a review. Enjoy. Shut up and sit down. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome, of course, to the podcast. I'm here with Dean Guido. Actually, Guido, I'm not here with Guido at all. Guido's down, and you're in New York, aren't you? Yeah, we're, we're actually, Mike and I are interviewing you. Oh, that's what's happening. You've been, <laughs> you've been with <laughs> Um, a lot of our previous guests, uh, are people I actually met for the first time in May of 2017 at the Kansas City Fitness Summit. And that applies to Mike T. Nelson as well. Um, Mike has been someone I've been actually reading his content on T Nation, not unlike our, one of our previous recent guests, Charles Staley, for yeah. years. And then just to kind of meet some of these people that I'm like, holy shit, like I've been reading your stuff for forever at this big event was was really cool. That conference was certainly uh, career changing for me. And then I brought Dean there last year. And then, of course, that blew shit up. So, uh, Mike, you've got a Ph.D. in exercise physiology, a B.A. in natural science and MS and biomechanics, years and years of coaching clients, teaching fitness professionals, writing fitness articles. There's a shit ton more. It doesn't even begin. You're pretty much one of the most prolific people in the industry that I've seen. You're always traveling. So it's a great pleasure to have you on here. So welcome. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on here. Greatly appreciate it. He knows lots of stuff is what you're saying by the sounds of it. How long have you been in school? I technically did 18-ish years of college full-time because I did five years in a PhD program in biomedical engineering, too. So I don't recommend that path to anyone who's listening. That's like the longest, most circuitous path to get anywhere. <laughs> Do you know some wow. things now? Some things. I don't know. A bunch of shit I know nothing about. <laughs> uh, well, there's a few things that we actually wanted to pull out of your brain. And, of course, anything that comes to mind, you're, you're yeah. free to go off into tangents about. But uh, you teach a lot of concepts in your industry. And one of the things you, you have a lot of current content about is metabolic flexibility. Now, I'm not sure everybody understands what that means, so I was hoping you could explain it and how it relates to people, trainers, uh, clients, everyday people. Yeah, so what's interesting in the fitness world is that everybody wants to be like polarized one direction or the other. So like for nutrition, like carbs are good, 
Oh, wait, now they're bad. No, keto is the best. No, keto's not good. High fat's good. No, protein will kill you. <laughs> you know, like everyone wants to be on like one side or the other side. The metabolic flexibility is looking at the main two fuels, carbohydrates and fat, and saying that you want to use the right fuel at the right time. So if you're going to do weight training, you're going to lift some heavy ass weights, uh, old school, Bill Star, five by five, I'm deadlift, whatever. Being able to use carbohydrates is going to be super effective. Anyone who's done like carb depletion and tried to lift, oof, just not a lot of fun. Performance goes down. On the flip side, hanging out all the time, you don't need carbohydrates to run resting metabolic rate and low intensity work. Uh, fat's probably a better source of energy for that. So again, it's metabolic flexibility is using the right fuel at the right time. Uh, carbohydrates for higher intensity exercise fat for lower intensity work and resting metabolic rate and then how well can you switch back and forth between those two in a perfect world you'd be able to switch back and forth relatively fast and that would be the definition of metabolic flexibility is there an ability to a certain extent to as an individual to make yourself better at the utilization of one or the other under certain situations? Do you train yourself to be, to use yeah. them better? Yeah, that's what's interesting. So when I first got into this almost, crap, 12 years ago, um, I got into it because I dropped out of the PhD program in biomedical engineering. I had only two classes left to finish the classwork portion. I had a hell of a time finding any research, so I hadn't started research. Then all my free time going to exercise physiology conferences, like one of the first ones I went to was Charles Daly had one in Arizona years ago. And I remember going down there and I'm sitting in the back. I was like super early and I'm like people sitting next to me and I'm like, hey, did you see that one study about such and such? They're like, no. I'm like, but you, I'm sure you saw the other study about such and such a thing. They're like, no. I'm like, what do you guys do? Like, oh, we're personal trainers. I'm like, oh, cool. I'm like, don't you read research? And they're like, no, that's why we're here. <laughs> like, oh, and they're like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> um, so I used to go to conferences and just annoy trainers. So I then dropped out of that program, went to the PhD program for exercise physiology. And I went to it because I was getting tired of doing a bunch of math stuff. And literally the first day I sat down, my advisor comes into the meeting. He's like, hey, we got two new projects. One's on heart rate variability. One's on metabolic flexibility. And they both involve a lot of math. He's looking around the table and he goes, you, math boy. He doesn't even like, remember my freaking name. He's like, these are your projects. Like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> that's how I got assigned metabolic flexibility. My first question when I looked at it, I'm like, well, who cares? Right? Because if... The textbooks, they all say that everyone's really good at using fat at rest. Everyone can use carbohydrates, so it, it's it's not a trainable thing. It doesn't change from one population to the next, therefore it doesn't matter. And then when I started digging into it, I realized that, oh, wait a minute. For a disease state, right, type 2 diabetics, you start losing carbohydrate metabolism. You actually start losing fat metabolism also. And then in a non-disease, so like healthy people, there's some very interesting studies from uh, Held, Gadecki. I ended up running one where they just took people, you know, active people, kind of off the street, recreational athletes, brought them in the lab, fasted, hooked them up to a metabolic cart, 
either at rest or pretty low intensity exercise. Like we did a 30% of uh, VO2 max. I think I was actually 30% of VT, ventilatory threshold. But it doesn't matter. Low intensity exercise. How well they used fat was dramatically different, from like 20 to 93% different, which doesn't match any of the textbooks. The textbooks would say everyone's super good at using fat at low intensity exercise. If you look at the variability from one person to the next, it's actually quite high. So then the next question is, well, how would you specifically train that? For performance stuff, you can still use carbohydrates, so it doesn't matter a whole lot. But I think especially for health parameters, like we saw some um, crossover stuff. So you put an athlete on a treadmill, you have them go fasted, and you should see fat uh, use kind of increases, increases, and at one point then they switch and they start using carbohydrates at high-intensity exercise. We saw a couple of athletes where even at rest, you know, fasted, just hooking them up on the machine, they're already like 75% carbohydrates, and they just keep going higher and higher. So they're kind of missing that whole entirely low end of fat metabolism. Now the performance of VO2 max was actually pretty good, right? Because carbohydrates are fueling that high end performance. But in my head, I'm thinking, man, you're probably not doing your health any benefits at all. You don't need to run carbohydrates at rest. There's not a big advantage from a bioenergetic standpoint. Um, and then on the flip side end, on the carbohydrate end, if you look at a disease, say there's something called McArdle's disease, you're missing the enzyme that allows you to break down glycogen. So store carbohydrates, uh, you're missing that enzyme just genetically. And if you take those people, we do a biopsy, ooh, lots of glycogen. Put them on a treadmill and have them start to run fast, they hate you. Their performance <laughs> just tanks. They get muscle pain. They have massive amounts of muscle breakdown because they can't use carbohydrates to fuel that exercise at all other than a little bit of blood glucose. And so that's an extreme state in a pathology that we don't normally see. However, if you have someone on a ketogenic type diet and you give them back a bunch of carbohydrates and go, great, we'll upregulate your fat use. Two, three, four days before the race, we'll just give you a piss ton of carbohydrates, eat pancakes, do whatever you want. And the thought being that, hey, we'll give you back carbohydrates so you can get that high-end performance. What you see is that it doesn't happen. So glycogen will still be replenished, but because of the enzyme, so it's an enzyme called PDH, pyruvate dehydrogenase, it's kind of like the gatekeeper to glycolysis, kind of the gatekeeper to accessing carbohydrates to the highest degree. That'll be uh, turned down by like single digit percent. So one, maybe 9%. Um, and in most people, if you're not that concerned about performance, that, that doesn't matter a whole lot. But man, if you're an elite athlete and I tell you, hey, we just cost you 5%, that's <laughs> massive. Like 1% difference in the Olympic marathon was the difference between first and second. So 1% different over the course of hours. That's not counting you know, strength and power events that could be 10 seconds or less for meter death. So the ends of the spectrum to answer your question do change. Uh, they can be modified. It can be modified either positive or negative. The one question I had was, so you've seen that in people that are ketogenic, and then people talk about that enzyme. So outside of those cases, is there anyone that like sucks at using carbs, like any kind of population that tends to suck at the sports? 
because that kind of seems like most people wouldn't suck at that. Yeah, most people are probably okay on that end of the spectrum, but where you can see it break down is if they do something that severely restricts carbohydrates, uh, possibly under eating and things like that, uh, super high stress, um, and then a lot of people have weird glucose metabolism stuff. So if you look at uh, fasting blood glucose, you should be you know, 80 to 89 is probably a pretty good range. That's the American numbers on that. And then uh, HbA1c, so your three-month average of blood glucose, right, looking at glycolated hemoglobin, you know, around 5-ish percent, you know, somewhere in there. However, you can still have these massive spikes in the first phase of insulin. So something called cephalic insulin release is nervous system modulating. And in some people I've seen, they will spike up like super high in blood glucose and then just crash super hard. But because those spikes are so short-lived, they won't show up in the average, and they're in response to food. So they're not going to show up in a fasted reading. Um, you can get at this a little bit by looking at something called a glycomark on the blood panel, which I got from Dr. Brian Walsh. Um, you can also look at how you feel after carbohydrates. And then you can also um, get fancy and do like a continuous glucose monitor. But you will have some athletes where you give them like say the, the two Pop-Tart challenge and <laughs> feel good for about five minutes and then they're like passed out on the floor going, ah, I don't want to train. Right? They probably have some wonky glucose metabolism going. We had Pop-Tarts last night, by the way. I got to try them. They're like split Pop-Tarts. We went to the store, Andrew. So yeah. Andrew's at home and we're, we're traveling. So we bought like just two things that are really bad food. So Pop-Tarts and, and Frosted Flake Lucky Charms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like Lucky Charms mixed with, with Frosted Flakes. So we didn't fall asleep after that. So we're good. But the Pop-Tarts <laughs> have split Pop-Tarts. So it's half one flavor and then half another. We have to do the test today, obviously, yeah. after or prior to workout or after. So we'll put as it long the as test. as long as it's not like half chocolate and half berry, because that would sound disgusting. But no, that was there was it was like cheesecake cheese and strawberry. I think yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I think so, that's tolerable. Yeah. yeah. So we we like to make fun of pop tarts, I guess, but I think I can handle it. Um, just to kind of go back to some of the other stuff that you're known for lately is. The, the HRV stuff. Yeah. So much like um, while well, you talked about it, like you studied uh, metabolic flexibility and then HRV. So you kind of have been the go-to guy for a lot of people for that <laughs> stuff. And I would say, I would say it's sort of new, even though it's not like it's becoming popular now. Yeah, so more popular now. Yeah. So like, how can, I guess the questions I get is how can you use it? And like, how can trainers use it with their clients or how do, can clients use it to kind of regulate their training? Because most real people is, and then and on top of that, they don't even know how it works. Real quick, guys, when you keep hearing Dean's mention HRV a lot in the podcast, heart rate variability, because a lot of people are picking up on that. So go ahead, Mike. Yeah, so how I ended up doing that, so people are like, well, wait a minute. Why the hell is your PhD on two like different topics? That doesn't make sense, right? Because normally PhD is very focused, like hyper-focused in one area. So what I was actually looking at was fine scale variability across physiologic systems. It doesn't make any sense at all. But heart rate variability is these little tiny changes in heart rate sitting at rest. So if we're sitting at rest, and I look at my heart rate right now, it's 55. Now it's 56. 
Now it's 57. You know, maybe they'll drop to 55. Oh. Yep, drop to 55, 53, 52. 52. Right, so there's a little bit of this fine-scale variability just sitting at rest. And that's actually a good thing. That's actually almost how all physiologic systems operate. So every physiologic system we've looked at in terms of this slight movement around a mean, uh, we've seen it. So if we look at sway, if we look at gait, if we look at some breathing stuff. So I was looking at fuel utilization during steady state exercise. How much are we oscillating a little tiny bit towards fat metabolism, a little tiny bit towards carbohydrate metabolism? Which most textbooks would say that doesn't happen. You're just locked into one field because it's steady state exercise. Uh, probably not true. So our variability, this fine scale variability, is actually a marker for parasympathetic tone. So the more parasympathetic tone you have, the more fine scale variability you have. And at rest, that's a good thing. Right? So if I drive my car and I press on the brake, that's like parasympathetic tone, right? Because at rest, I want my heart rate to be relatively low. When I go to exercise, I want to step on the gas pedal. I want more sympathetic output. So I want heart rate to go up, and I want all the other beneficial stuff with that. With heart rate variability, what we're looking at is usually one measurement done first thing in the morning, and that gives us the state of our autonomic nervous system. So if I went to the gym and drank four cups of coffee and we did Olympic weightlifting for two hours. The next day, my HRV is probably going to be more on the sympathetic side. Right? It's going to say, hey, you're a little bit more stressed. EGS or what? Yeah, no, I was, I was going to bubble <laughs> over. I was like, i got to spread my knees out. Anyways. Um, and so what it will tell us is at rest, what is kind of the state of your nervous system? And the good part is that that's some cool information that we have. The downside is that that could be altered by anything in your life. I've seen athletes come in where they had yesterday, they just got, you know, pounded in training and they were pretty good. Of course, they also slept 10 hours a night. They're in a caloric surplus. Their life's not very stressful. They're all right. I've seen other athletes do a very light training load, got an argument with their wife in the morning before they left. The next day, their HRV is just horrible. So any stressor will show up in your HRV. On one hand, that's good, right? Because that tells us that HRV is an accurate indicator of the status of our autonomic nervous system. The downside is it will drive trainers and coaches absolutely batshit crazy. Because if they don't know the context of what's going on, they have no other markers for lifestyle factors, they won't be able to figure anything out. So like one of the apps I use is from iFleet. They'll take in the morning resting heart rate and run HRV in 60 seconds. And then the athletes have to move these little slider scores on how they feel they are. Energy, nutrition, sleep. So they have those self-report indicators. So a lot of stuff I do is online. They'll send me an aggregate score, let's say, over a week or if something's going on each day. The first thing I'll look is, okay, what's resting heart rate? What's HRV? Ooh, wow, HRV tanked Monday, Thursday, Friday. The second thing I'm going to look at is what did they self-report on those days? They self-reported that their sleep was in the crapper for those three days. I'm going to think, okay, maybe it's sleep. If all of those look good, there's not really much of a change. Then I'm going to look at their training and see, oh, wow, yeah, we, we beat you down pretty hard Monday and Tuesday. So maybe from training. The hard part with trainers and coaches is that we all, myself included, 
want to think it's all about the training. It must have been their training. And then the second part is that for strength and power athletes, prediction of acute performance based on HRV is actually quite poor. Um, endurance training, it's not too bad. But acute training on HRV from just the daily score is not super good. And I think that's what athletes are looking at. They're like, because I get crazy emails from people that are like, hey, my HRV was red. It was horrible. I said, this and went to the gym. I said, PRs. You don't know dick about HRV. <laughs> that's, I don't know how many times I've gotten that I don't, email. I don't even know if, it, like, that's the weird thing. I think that based on the description of it, everyone kind of takes their own conclusions and then say that should correlate with strength. Like, I think even Jay Ashman. Yesterday, anyways, he was on your post saying yeah, that's yeah. not a good indicator of strength. Like, no one said it was, and I, don't, I think that that's the misconception is that your stressor and how you are for training is going to correlate with numbers and HRV never. <clears throat> and I would say on the opposite end, when my HRV is not as good, I've had good training days because I said screw it, let's lift, and I've kind of realized that it's more just <laughs> an indicator of your overall stress levels. Use that. Yes. But, I mean, yeah. if it's a three and you want to go train and lift a PR, you could do that, but you're probably going to get sick. I tell people, not- like, the biggest thing I found is that think of HRV as the cost of everything in your life yeah. on your autonomic nervous system. Your sleep, your relationships, your nutrition, your training, all those things. Now, if you're so, you know, dialed to the nuts in that training is the only biggest stressor in your life, yeah, HRV is probably going to be relatively reflective of training. If you're like most people and your lifestyle changes a lot day to day, probably more indicative of lifestyle. Um, and even like if I have a, I've worked with pretty couple high level power lifters who qualified for raw nationals. Um, we took his taper. We did all this training by HRV and we took his taper, which initially was seven days. And we initially said, okay, it's going to be 14 days because I don't know on the first round how long it's going to take you to recover from all that accumulated fatigue. What I want to see is like two weeks out, his HRV is probably pretty crappy, right? We've pushed him so hard. He's got good control over his lifestyle stressors that his HRV is starting to tank. It's starting to become sympathetic, right? That's how I know we've probably added enough training volume to get super compensation. So I'm going to start the taper early. I'm going to see HRV start to come back up. If it's up too high too soon, that's easy to fix, right? We'll add a couple of training days. We'll do a simulation, whatever. If it doesn't recover within seven days, I haven't found anything that you can really almost force that recovery. And then literally like a day or two before the meet, I actually want them to be a little bit sympathetic, like red or even amber. Why? Because on that day, if you have a higher level of more sympathetic output, you're going to be a little bit stronger, right? It's going to enhance a gross motor skill, which would be powerlifting. Um, if you're super high HRV, you're super parasympathetic, which I have seen a couple of people that happen to, you'll drink like four cups of coffee and you're like, I can't get ready for this lift. I want to take a nap in the corner somewhere, even though your HRV would be really good. So again, it goes back to what is the context of it? And you also know that when they do a powerlifting event, yeah, it's a lot of stress, but it's one day. Who cares if you're red for three or four days after it? That's not the point. You can take those days off and recover, and you're fine, right? So you have the time on the back end to push a little bit harder and be okay. The, the lowest my HRV has been 
is after drinking. Oh, at a, at a wedding. So <laughs> alcohol will crush <laughs> HRV. Like I look at people's HRV scores now online, and I'm like, how many drinks do you have last night? And they're like, what? I didn't put that in the comments. What are you spying on me on social media? I didn't even put it on there. I'm like, because your HRV dropped so much, and your other indicators were not that far off, other than sleep. I'm guessing you probably went out and had a few drinks. Um, one drink, usually not too bad, but even two drinks, I've seen people's scores drop quite a bit. Even more freaky, and some people, it depends on what type of alcohol. Even if you control for the same amount of alcohol, some people, certain types of alcohol, just, for, I don't know, whatever reason, has a bigger effect on their HRV than other types. What types are usually uh, more problematic? For who? And that's what I tried to figure out, too. And it's not very clear-cut, but I would say if someone is has an issue with red wine, I'll switch them to white wine, and sometimes that's better. Um, if they have an issue with uh, hard alcohol and it's a dark alcohol, I'll switch to, like, vodka or a clear. That's generally true, but not always. I mean, I have one client who... He loves like super high end tequila and <laughs> two shots of it, and he has HRV would tank. Paradoxically, he switched him to vodka and he was fine. I don't know. <laughs> that's just that's just tequila. I mean, just the smell of that stuff will tank your yeah. HRV as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that is good though. I mean, if you're someone who like is gonna drink and you are tracking those variables, you can I guess see those changes <laughs> and like make a better choice. I don't yeah. know. If, Maybe consumption should go down, but I mean, if you wanted yeah. to have something better, just don't drink tequila if you're not a tequila person. And at a higher enough intake, everyone's going to drop, right? It's just kind of yeah. those lower end intakes. Mine, really mine was like 15 drinks. It was a wedding. <laughs> it was like a two. I, I'd never even seen it. It was like red. And the funny thing is, I, I would say, even with my college football background, a lot of people would train after those days. And oh, there's, yeah. there's some people who would drink two nights in a row and still train. And I, I, it would just made me aware of like, how did I do that? Yeah. It hurt. Yeah. I mean, I have a client now who he's doing good. He's super compliant. Everything's awesome. But he'll go out a couple, like three, four nights a week and have three to four drinks as part of his job. So in the past, I'd be like, bro, you can't go out and drink so much. And then he'll not like me and he'll still drink. And then he'll just not tell me about it. And then two months later, I'm banging my head against the wall because I can't figure out what's going on. So now I'm like, okay, or experiment this week, just report whatever you have for alcohol, and then I want to look to see what your HRV score is the next day. And then I'm going to be like, hey, look, when you have two or more drinks, your HRV drops by like 10 plus points. What do you think's going on? It's like, oh, oh, oh my God, drinking affects my HRV? Like, yeah. You know, so I kind of, I try to put the onus back on the person to be like, hey, you know, if you want to you know, reach your goal, here's the cost that causing you right now it's up to you to decide if that's worth it or not at some point you can't you can't have both like i want to hit all my goals 100 percent. i want to drink you know three to four drinks four nights a week with a crappy hrv score and you can only ride that train so long because we're canada and and cannabis is legal is there any studies or like data for i, I guess if it makes it better, because I would say that most people that are defending would be like, oh, if I smoke weed, it makes me recover better because I could be more relaxed. Is there anything on that? Not much. And that's the same question I wondered for quite a while. Um, so I just did a kind of a little mini literature review on it. Because you have people on both sides. Like, I, mean, I know people that are like, oh, 
It's the best thing I ever did in my life. And other people are like, oh, it's the most horrible thing. Don't ever touch it. It's horrible, right? Because everyone's like super polarized on one and the other. Yeah. In terms of the actual research study, there's not too much. There's a pretty good review in JSCR uh, last year. There's some anecdotal stuff and there's some okay stuff showing that um, acute ingestion, inhalation, or actually via IV of THC did expand uh, airways. Um, but if you look at a study that was done on aerobic performance, it uh, wasn't better. Uh, there was a mouse study that looked at muscle effects and showed mitochondrial effects dropped by like around 10 to 12 percent. But again, it's a mouse study. It's a mechanistic thing. Uh, if you look at like strength performance, there was a pretty good study that was done on it. Granted, they had to use people who were self-report, and they did run a blood analysis for THC and some other metabolites. In that group, only 7 out of 10 of those people actually been tested positive for metabolites, even though the 10 people reported that they had used it one to two times a week. Uh, but again, not standardized for, you know, was it an edible, was it an inhalation, what type, all that stuff. But in general, that study didn't show much of a difference on performance. You know, anthropometric data wasn't that different. Um, so the data we have now, which is really, really sparse, is, eh, Probably not a huge pro, probably not a huge con. The caveat with all that is, like, dose will make a huge difference, and modality of training will probably make a huge difference. I mean, I know some people that will do it before cardiovascular training and think that it's great. And, you know, less people that will do it before weight training and think that it's great. Um, I know some people who are the opposite, who are, like, just doesn't seem to help them at all. So... Yeah, I don't know. We don't have too many studies on it. Hopefully, as it becomes more legal, we'll have more. Uh, the only caveat with all that is that there's some pretty good data, especially in animals, on TBI uh, with uh, mixed cannabinoids, possibly CBD, even small amounts of THC. So if you're in a sport where you get uh, whacked on the head, uh, prophylactically, even mixed cannabinoids, which are non-psychoactive, like which do not include THC or a very, very low dose of THC, um, appear to have some pretty good neuroprotection effects, uh, neuroinflammation. There's an animal study showing that they may protect the blood-brain barrier. So if you take a massive whack to the head, what happens is your brain goes through a massive energy crisis. The glucose regulation gets disrupted immediately. And then also what can happen is your blood-brain barrier, because of the damage, can actually open up. So now you've got all these things infiltrating the brain from all over the body that are not used to being there, and you exacerbate that whole inflammation response. Again, the animal studies showed that maybe uh, mixed cannabinoids could help with keeping that blood-brain barrier intact as a prophylactic. Um, and it's not public data yet, but... Maybe the NFL will be looking at some of this stuff in the not too distant future because mixed cannabinoids and CBD are legal in the US as long as the THC content is less than 0.3%. It's regulated as hemp in the Department of Agriculture. So even in the US, where um, THC is regulated on a kind of state by state basis, it's still federally illegal. Uh, mixed cannabinoids are still legal in most states. Which is kind of cool data. Like, I think we were talking about it. And even like the the effects of like your testosterone dropping after getting spanked in the head 
not that it could be mitigated, but it could be helped just by having that. But would it be? Could be. One of the things is, is in that, were they on CBD before and kind of during, or is it something you could take acutely after after the acute injury? Like, what is there an effect either of those? I guess dosage situations. Probably both. The blood brain barrier study, if I remember, was prophylactically really given to them ahead of time before they got whacked in the head. Um, there is some stuff that afterwards is probably still good. My gut feeling is that probably prophylactically and just continuing to use it is probably going to be best. Um, again, we have some studies on creatine on that and animal models. Uh, human use 10 to 20 grams of creatine may help with that too. Again, not a lot of data, but there's some pretty good mechanistic data on that. Again, the hard part is there's tons of different cannabinoids. We don't know the exact dose. My gut feeling is that a mixed cannabinoid in terms of a hemp oil is probably going to be better than CBD only. Um, but CBD by itself is just kind of more sexy now. And there's some good data behind that, too. I also asked them if I think you're sure. <laughs> How they studied them, the mice getting TBIs, and, and the answer was pretty simple. They just yeah, they had two groups of mice, and they gave the one group of mice high dose creatine, the other group they didn't. They literally had a calculated, uh, calibrated device that thwacked them on the heads. <laughs> it's not and funny. And they had them do some tests, and then they sacrificed the <laughs> mice and got their brain. Obviously, not going to do that in humans. No IRB is no. going to. That. Well, that, that's where I wonder how studies are going to go. I, I was actually interested because I think a lot of people would be like, how do they even do that? But like in humans, like that's hard. You basically have to study people who get back in the head, which yeah. would be football or hockey. Or, and then you'd have to do a self-selection of people yeah. who did use creatine and who self-selected to not use it. you got to calibrate for the dose. Um, and the hard part with all those studies, too, because people are like, hey, Wow, there's no randomized human-controlled trial showing that creatine reduces the risk for TBI. I'm like, there probably never will be. Because if we come up with enough data, mechanistic data in animals, to suggest that creatine is potentially very helpful with TBI, it now actually becomes unethical to run a trial to not give it to one group. Yeah, because you'd basically be simulating a concussion, and then they would technically have a chance (laughs) of better at the other one. They'd be like, I want to be in that group. Right. The only thing you do to get around that is if you can come up with a test in a very short order to differentiate a difference, you could say, okay, we've got a seven-day intervention, and then as soon as that study is done, we'll give a full dose of creatine to that group. But because it's probably helping prophylactically, you still wouldn't be able to give it to them prophylactically. So it's to be kind of hard to actually study on that. Is there anything else, um, as far as cannabis, CBD oil, that sort of stuff, that there seems to be some promise when it comes to uh, any fitness-related outcomes? Possibly recovery, in quotes, because we don't really know what even recovery is. So I view recovery as your ability to go back into the gym and do kind of the same thing again in a shorter time course. Um, I have seen some anecdotal data from some pretty high-level strength coaches and even on myself. Uh, mixed cannabinoids that standardized for CBD or CBD by itself uh, may help kind of a quote-unquote CNS recovery, and that was determined by uh, DC potential via Omega Wave. And I've done that a couple times too. Um, that's pretty anecdotal at this point, 
but there's some mechanistic data to possibly support that. Um, anecdotal stuff for anxiety, things of that nature, ability to concentrate. Even that data is just, it's like all over the map. And what we'll probably find like most things is, yeah, here's a bell curve where some people are gonna respond. There's some people who are not gonna respond. There's some people who are probably gonna be hyper responders too. And you know, the downside with anecdotal data is it's an N of one, so there's always potentially a placebo. So if you look as CBD becomes more and more popular, more and more people are exposing the benefits of it, you could argue that the placebo effect of it actually gets bigger. So the N of one data may be skewed more towards that direction. And placebo effect can actually vary by country, can vary by state, can vary by region. Uh, pharmaceutical companies have used this and they try to run studies sometimes in areas where the placebo effect is less because drugs will be more easily approved because they have to show efficacy against a placebo. Drugs are approved in the 70s because placebo has actually gone up over time. If you ran that exact same study now, it would probably not even get approved. So it gets to be tricky to figure out. That is interesting. I think there's obviously going to be a lot more that we want to see on research and and like, there's so many people out there talking about cannabis. You see a lot of crazy stuff on social media. You know, there's oh, the, yeah. the, extreme, the extreme end of it where, like, oh, cannabis cures cancer. Like, okay, guys, it's nowhere near that. Like, they're, they're suppressing a cure. Like, holy shit, that's paranoid conspiracy theory stuff. <laughs> but at the same time, there may be some practical implications if it's researched that it helps treatment with any number of medical issues. And even if it's just alleviating pain and making people feel better, who knows? So it would be a really good idea if they continue to expand the research, especially in the medical realm. If it's going to help people, that's wonderful. And again, like Dean mentioned, you know, <laughs> Canada just decriminalized marijuana, which is going to be an interesting sort of thing as it goes on. I know the U.S., for the most part, still tends to be very, very negative about this. But I know there are some states where it's also been decriminalized. Uh, Hopefully, at least in Canada, that will open the doors to more research and see if there's actually anything to this. Dispel the myths and the crazies who are claiming that it's the, the greatest thing in the universe and it fixes every problem known to man, <laughs> but isolates actually what Canada really can is. find the cure, man. You never know. Now that we have, we, we could be leading the world in it. Yeah, and that's the bugger in the U.S. because it's federally illegal. So most of the studies I've read are done outside the U.S., right, because NIH is the main group that's going to pay for a lot of big trials, big research. It's kind of the amount of paperwork you'd have to go through to get an NIH-sponsored trial looking at marijuana or cannabis is a nightmare because it's technically a Scheduled one drug, which by definition means that there is no medical use for it, which is crap. Um, but the paperwork is the same as if you were to study heroin, right? Because <laughs> it's the same category, the amount of work you have to do to get through to even try to study it, much less the funding, makes it really, really hard. And up until recently, you had to get your cannabis. If you got all through that and got all that approved, there was one place in like Mississippi that supposedly grew this horrible looking sick cannabis stuff because it was federally illegal. They had no other source for it. Um, Rumor is now they've changed that to allow people to use private sector stuff that can be tested, which makes way more sense. Uh, but yeah, we're just super far behind. <laughs> even trying to figure out what's going on, at least in the U.S. Okay. 
Um, something else that I, I mentioned this when we first got on here is, is you're a hyper prolific when it comes to article writing, content creation. Um, you know, I'm a, I subscribe to your email list and the, the emails are coming in what definitely feel like daily. <laughs> if not, there's Pretty a few much. a week. <laughs> so, um, and I've always really admired uh, professionals who I found were prolific content creators. I look at guys like Luca Hosevar or someone, that's part of his yeah. brand. He, he pumps out tons of shit. Uh, Dean Somerset, we've actually had him on the podcast talking about, you know, how he's productive because this guy's creating info products and he writes a lot of articles. He's got his podcast. He, he's fairly sporadic with those, but he's traveling yeah. Presenting in places. So how the fucking hell do you actually <laughs> create so much content? What are the the habits? What are the what are the foundational behaviors that allow you to do that stuff? Where a lot of people obviously don't do it as well. Yeah, I think the the biggest thing is I try to write for the newsletter mostly daily. My goal is to get five out of seven days per week. Um and I also my secondary goal is to make sure it's actually good content, not to feel like I have to put something out every day because, you know, sometimes you get a whole bunch of stuff. Sometimes you, you don't have much. I'm not going to send stuff out just to say that I, you know, sent it out every day. Um, the other part is a couple uh, tactics is I use Evernote. So I'll take anything like studies I want to read. They go into Evernote. I'll pull the full PDF. Some stuff that I have ideas for the newsletter, I'll throw that into a separate folder that says newsletter ideas. Um, usually for the newsletter articles, I'll sit down, uh, usually Sunday, try to plan out a little bit of what I'm going to write just for titles and rough ideas and sketches. And then when I'm at home, I work at a co-working place uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So I like pack all my food and everything and I head down there. It's only eight miles from my house. But it's a dedicated place where I try to leave my computer off until noon or one. So I try not to go online at all. And then my goal is just I'll have a block for three hours, usually each one of those days, just for writing. Um, at a minimum, I try to write every day for about at least a half hour. Some days are longer, some days are less. Depends on what I'm working on. And then uh, my wife does help me with some of the editing because I realize even now I get stuck where I'm really good at getting an article to like 80 or 90%, and then I get kind of tired of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bad habit of them kind of sitting around in like this 80 to 90% finished state. Now what I'll do with that is I'll send it to her as sort of uh, a time thing so I kind of forget what I wrote about a little bit and she'll kind of proof it and send it back. Um, sometimes for the newsletter stuff because it's more timely, that's a little bit shorter turnaround time. And I think the biggest part is just having it become part of your habit and then also having it, I find I like doing it before I allow another uh, inputs in. So I try to be very cognizant of how many inputs I allow in and how many outputs I'm doing. So an input in could be writing, or I'm sorry, input in could be like research, uh, it could be watching a video, it could be doing something else. Yeah, maybe scrolling through Facebook a little bit, but I find sometimes it can be more distracting than anything else. And then an output is, okay, writing an article, putting out a product, adding something to the certification, things of that nature. And then in the afternoon, I'll do more client stuff, client supplies, things of that nature. Um, before I travel, I usually have some rough versions of articles sketched out ahead of time, or I'll write them early in the morning on the plane. I usually try to find early in the mornings a little bit better. 
just kind of making it a, a priority, especially from a, a business thing. People are always like, ah, I just I want, you know, like especially online coaching or training, there's this perception that, oh, it's just so easy. And it's like, but if you don't put out any content, no one's really going to know who you are. You can go just like down the whole industry, right? And list anyone who I'd say is quote unquote more famous now in our little niche of the world. I can't think of a single person in that quote unquote category who hasn't put out a fair amount of content. Like I can't even come up with a single name. You know, and a lot of times if you look at them, they've been doing it for years. I mean, Eric Cressy's been writing an article almost daily for probably like almost two decades now. You know, I mean, Dean Somerset, you just go down the list of all the people. and I think it just becomes a habit that you do over time. Cressy's legendary for his, his output. And I think we talked about this when we had Pete Dupuy, his uh, yeah. partner at Cressy Sports Performance on the podcast a while back. And <coughs> Eric, uh, he's got what, like, I think he's got uh, twins. So yeah. I think things slowed down a little bit, but, you know, they opened a second facility in Jupiter, Florida. He went down there. He's down there during like the training season running that. So this guy is, is quite legendary for his productivity and output. And, uh, and Pete also talked about how a lot of that leading into when they open up the facility and Eric's brand and being out there in the world. He's another one of those guys I've been reading for years on T Nation amongst other resources. Uh, <clears throat> this is one of the big things that helped launch them. I always like making this point a lot because you'll get people who'll be like, Oh, fucking T Nation. Like they'll, they'll be really <laughs> negative about it. And I always try to remind people this. First of all, a lot of great people that I followed. I actually first discovered them on T Nation. That applies to you. That applies to Charles Staley. Yeah. Um, I sort of, I, I think I've said this out here. I sort of discovered Deed Somerset both simultaneously on T Nation and the fact that the guy worked for the same fucking company that I did in Edmonton <laughs> uh, for a long time. And now we both are under a different umbrella uh, as as private uh, business owners under uh, the Evolve. So, uh, you know, we, we've been sort of linked together for a while. It's kind of funny. Then, uh, so the T Nation thing is this. There is a lot of bro bullshit on there. There is. And there are a few authors on there. I'm just like, guys, like, just stop posting. Like, stop allowing this person to trip. <laughs> but um, it's a really good place for fitness professionals and, and, and serious enthusiasts to go in and test your bullshit filter. You can go in there. There's going to be a lot of really good content. It's definitely for <laughs> big lifters. And then you're going to go in there and you're going to read some stuff. And you're going to be like, the, no, this, this fails yeah. the smell test. And I think that's a really good exercise for people to, to go through because it sharpens your skills, your analytical skills, your uh, critical thinking skills. So I still think it's a really good resource. I don't read it as much anymore as it used to because I tend to go directly to the, the content of the individuals I follow. And if anyone reads the work of say like an Eric Bach is a really good, good example. Yeah. Eric's writing on. T Nation is very different from Eric's other writing. Yeah. He understands, and I'm pretty sure he mentioned this when we interviewed him, that I think it was him that said this, that you write to the audience. So if you're writing for totally. different publications and websites, it's going to change. And I and I know that your writing for that particular site is geared towards that audience. It's very different from some of the stuff that you're creating for, say, your own uh, more direct following. Yeah. And funny story, like, I don't know if everyone knows this, but like how I actually got published on T Nation. I I mean, I grew up like in the early 2000s, like reading all the stuff, reading, you know, Dr. Lonnie Lowry stuff, John Berardi, you know, Cressy, Mike Robertson, Chad Waterbury, you know, go down the list. 
I remember like when they would come out, I'd print them out when I was doing my med tech job and I'd go to take my lunch and I'd read all the articles and stuff. I'm like, oh, this is so crazy. And um, they had the, the test fest or whatever, like the first conference they did that Phil Stevens put together. So I had busted my ankle at the time. I legally drove my car to go get Wi-Fi access because I didn't have it at home to create a PayPal address to send the money for it. And <laughs> I get all the way out there and the conference was great. I was super nervous. I didn't want to be there. I didn't at the time I was just not being around people was not good. I threw up twice in the bathroom while I was there. Um, but and finally at that night had a few drinks and TC was hanging out. I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta go ask TC this question. It's gonna be a train wreck, but I gotta do it. I went up to him. I said, "Hey, TC," I said, "I love all your stuff for the article." He's like, "Yeah, yeah." And I said, "Well, I know everyone's gonna ask you this, but I said I gotta ask anyway." He said, "How do I get an article published on T Nation?" He looks at me and he goes, "What have you done?" I said, oh, "You know, I just started training a few clients now." And he's like, "What's your background?" I said, oh, you know, I'm doing mostly engineering stuff, but I've taken a lot of physiology. Like, oh, how many people have you trained?" I just started with a couple people now. He looks at me and he goes, okay, why don't you go away for about six years, go do something worthwhile, and then come back and ask me about a fucking article. Wow. <laughs> and at the time, I was like, oh, my God, this guy's such a douchebag, whatever. And then I sat and thought about it and I went, oh, my God, he's actually right. <laughs> I'm like, he's actually right. And so when I sent him the article in 2011, I said, hey, TC, you may not really remember this, but here's the advice you told me. Here's what I did in those six years. And here's an article that's already done. I've had it edited. Let me know what you think. He looks at it and he goes, oh, good work. We'll publish it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Still think you're an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Were you that kid puking in the bathroom? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, Andrew, we're gonna we're gonna skip the heavy metal stuff because we okay. gotta go in like five minutes. Oh, no. We do yeah. like to ask, or I'll let Andrew ask it. <laughs> throw him the book one. It's your question. All right. So, Mike, real quick, um, are there any books that you found particularly important to you? Something you'd want to recommend to everybody else to read that would help them. Mm. Just in general or in any particular your category? Favorite, I, I like to say um, your favorite book that like impacted you the most. Like the yeah, book. Exactly. There was one book, it doesn't matter which one, it could be Harry Potter. I mean like strength training stuff, I mean, you know, even some of Ripito's stuff, like uh the programming book he had with Kilgore was really good. Um obviously super training because I I was sad that Mel Siff was an engineer who lived in Minnesota and I knew guys who knew him and just never met him before he passed away. So getting that book was just like, oh my God, this is like Russian stuff. Whoa. Um, but I would say in non-training stuff, probably anything from uh, Stephen Pressfield, especially like uh, Do the Work, um, Returning Pro. And they're just all, read it. Just yeah, read they're, it. All, they're all kind of the same, but I literally have a copy like at home. I don't feel motivated. I just pick it up and I just turn to any random page and you read about two, three, four pages and you're like, all right, yeah, I can, I can go again. I'm good. <laughs> I, I think that's amazing advice and you're so right. Pressfield's work is actually really short as books go. Yeah. So you could exactly do that. You're right. It's all the same, like the war of art and turning yeah. power, largely the same concept. It's really about just getting into it, getting the work done. The understanding all the resistance that stands in our way from actually doing shit 
yeah, I love those books. Yeah, and they're just so practical too, because it's like basically, hey, um, you need to do your art and you need to do what you think is best for you in the world. And some shit's going to happen and it's going to be hard. And it doesn't matter what level you get to. That process is probably never going to change. Is it going to get a little bit easier? Yeah, but then you're going to still have days. It's going to be hard. And that's, that's just part of the process. It's part of life and just deal with it. <laughs> cool. Um, okay. What's the, we'll throw some plugs. What's the best way to consume all things Mike, Mike T. Nelson? Probably just go to the website, miketnelson.com. Uh, you can go to the top. There's uh, an offer there to get on the newsletter. Uh, that offer will probably be changed up pretty soon. I'm actually doing one called um, Should I Do a Ketogenic Diet? <laughs> <laughs> and I created a little flow chart and I animated the flow chart um, because I thought, well, what's like the question I get like most often? Um, I tried to make it entertaining, right? So it's like, you know, go through the chart. It says, do you do CrossFit? Yes. Don't do keto. Go eat two sweet potatoes. <laughs> You know, do you do strongmen? Yes. You know, shut up, go eat two pop tarts. You know, so yeah. <laughs> Nelson.com. Yeah, and the, and the newsletter is great. Like, I would say that there's a lot of people who like don't do their newsletter very often. I would say your most of your content's on it. Like, like most of it. Yeah. All the good stuff tends to be through the newsletter, so that's kind of cool. Cool. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll end up we'll talk about this. We'll end up creating a cool graphic for you, something that ties into the episode. You splash that around in the newsletter, guys. You can also find Mike on social media as well. You, I, I, you're on Instagram, I'm pretty sure, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just started using Instagram again for quite a while. It was just uh, dark coffee, death metal, and pictures of steak. But there's actually <laughs> probably other stuff on there now, in addition to all those still. <laughs> and I, they can follow you on Facebook and, and what have you. But the newsletter is the, the best way to get a lot of Mike. Cool. Yeah, that's where I put most of the content through. Cool. Well, guys, uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. It was really cool yeah, to have thanks, you. You've been someone. Fun. I appreciate it. We've been we've been like planning for a long time, and he's like, "Look, we'll get him on. We'll get him on." And it was actually just the perfect opportunity because Dean's out there traveling with you. For everybody tuning in, guys, thank you so much. If you really like this episode, we've got uh, this should be following uh, a really great episode with Megan Calloway. Just before that, we had Charles Staley. If you're one of Mike's people who's listening to us for the first time. Well, shit, we've mentioned a number of fitness professionals that we've interviewed. Uh, check out one of our other episodes. See if you like some of the really r- ridiculous shit Mike Isertel has said on our podcast. He's been on three times. And if you like that, maybe you'll stick around and check out a few more. We're working really hard to bring some, you know, the great, the best guests of the industry, really cool people, and having some conversations that are a little different than the routine questions that we see all the time. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have an awesome day, guys. Shut up and sit down.